As a church, we have been spending the past four weeks uh, in the letter of Titus, and today is our last sermon in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Titus. You'll remember Titus uh, is caring for a burgeoning church on the ancient island of Crete, and we're trying to learn uh, what still can inform how we live in this modern-day city of Vancouver, and there's a lot of parallels. In our passage last week, Paul stressed how only grace can change us through and through. But in just, just in case you're just joining us or you meet, need a reminder, let's make sure we're on the same page about what grace is. Uh, I find Paul Zoll's definition very helpful. He wrote, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you're unlovable. It's being loved when you're the opposite of lovable. And in our last passage in this letter, the apostle brings us back to grace once again, because sometimes we need to see something from multiple angles to really get a sense of it. And the fact that Paul returns to grace so quickly means that we can't comprehend or exhaust the beauties of grace. It's like taking in nature, you know, the mountains and the, the ocean and the sunset or the sunrise. We're inclined to say, do it again. You know, and this can become our posture towards grace too. At least that's the invitation. And so if you think you know grace, been there, done that, I've got this down, I want to invite you to recover a sense of awe and curiosity about grace. Because even if you've heard everything I'm about to say in this sermon, you should never cease to have awe about grace. And so I invite you to even pray and say, Lord, help me to hear about grace with fresh ears, with an open heart. If you're new to the concept of grace or you're just dipping in your toes to explore the Christian faith, I do hope you will see how grace really is the key to everything. It is not just a theological theme. It is the anchor of our lives. And so Paul brings Titus back to grace because he wants the church to understand that grace leads to what he calls good works or good deeds, living well. That's one of his primary motives for writing this letter to Titus at all. Paul knows firsthand that when grace takes root in our soul, it changes us through and through, and it changes the way we live. We have a new devotion to good works. It doesn't just change our spiritual private lives, but all of our lives. It changes the way we live and move and have our being at home, in the public sphere. It changes us. Slowly and surely, it will make us different, and we'll start to live a life that is appealing to those who are observing us. And this matters so much to Paul. That he, he goes on to say we should devote, devote our lives to such good works as an expression of God's grace to us. But Paul also wants to safeguard the church against the dangerous belief that our good works can save us. Because it's easy, right, to hear him rattle us off a list of ethical commands, do this, not that, do this, not that, and think if we just keep the rules, if we just do the right things, if we just have good works, then God will accept us, then God will approve of us. That's what's required in order to be saved. But if we look at grace again from another angle, which is what Paul's doing, we'll see that our good works can't possibly play a role in our salvation. And when we see that, it's a relief and a source of great joy. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to grab it. Here's the big idea I want to explore in this passage. Grace enables us to be devoted to good works, but not defined by good works. 
Grace enables us to be devoted to good works, but not defined by good works. So open up your Bible to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be spending our time in verses 1 through 8. If you don't own a Bible, grab one of our gray Bibles, take it home with you. Everything's on the screen behind me. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. For we ourselves were once. This is a different sort of once upon a time, isn't it? It's more like Brothers Grimm than Disney. A while back, I was reading uh, The Little Mermaid to Ansley. And to our surprise, because neither of us knew, we were actually reading the Brothers Grimm version. And so as we're approaching the end, we're expecting Princess Ariel to marry Prince Eric and live happily ever after. But instead, we turn to the last page and Ariel is watching Eric marry someone else and she dies alone and dissolves into the water. And Ansley looks up at me and goes, the end? And I said, yes, everybody dies, baby. That's a fact. Needless to say, we haven't read that version again. There are some perspectives we would rather avoid. And if we're honest, in our cultural moment, Paul's perspective on human nature might be one of those things we'd rather avoid. Paul instructs Titus to remind the church in Crete to seek after good works because this has not been their baseline. If this is how people naturally lived, if people naturally sought after good works all the time, there would be no need for reminder. Rather, their norm has been verse 3, as Paul writes, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, perhaps we could concede that once upon a time, the people of Crete were in fact this bad. You know, they were lawless pirates after all. But for the most part, we're inclined to hold a passage like this at arm's length. Surely Paul is talking uh, about, uh, you know, the worst case scenario of humanity, but not everybody and not all people. But there's this uncomfortable word that Paul uses. Do you see it? He says, we, we were once. Oh, why did Paul have to go ahead and say that? Now, Paul includes himself in this once upon a time version of humanity. He doesn't stand above the Cretans as morally superior. In fact, he says, no, I was was just as bad. But why? I mean, if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, he was no Cretan. Far from it. Prior to his encounter with Jesus, Paul lived as a pious Jew. And in the letter he wrote to the Philippians, we learn a lot about his his life before encountering the movement of Jesus. He says, in respects, uh, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, I was exemplary. No, in regards to the law, he was a Pharisee. He was among the strictest sect of Judaism. He was the best rule keeper there was. He says, in regards to righteousness under the law, in other words, living well, doing what is good, following the rules of God. He says, I was blameless. In short, Paul describes himself as a good, moral, upstanding person who was law-abiding and seriously religious. 
So what happened then? What happened that Paul can go from seeing himself that way to identifying with Cretans, saying we ourselves were once? Believe it or not, grace is what happened. Grace has allowed Paul to see himself in a new light, and it gave him the courage to see the parts of himself that he would rather deny. Now, this might come as a bit of a surprise. You, you might not think that grace would do this. How could the, you know, the unconditional love of God have such an effect on us? You might still resist Paul here because the problem is that we've become accustomed to living in a house of mirrors. We live with a distorted view of ourselves. Psychologists have demonstrated in numerous studies that we exaggerate our best features and diminish our worst. We stretch out and amplify everything we like about ourselves or wish to believe about ourselves, but we don't see ourselves rightly at all. It's a carefully constructed illusion. In 1954, the English artist Graham Sutherland was commissioned to paint a portrait of Winston Churchill, uh, the prime minister who led England through the Second World War. And when the work was finished, Churchill's wife was the first to see it, and she thought it was a perfect resemblance of her husband. She actually said it looks really quite alarmingly like him. But when Churchill saw it, he did not have the same reaction. He saw it and he said, this is filthy. And actually he was quoted of saying, I look like a down and out drunk who's been picked up out of the gutter. Come on, Winnie, it's not that bad. But he saw this portrait and he could not stand it. You see, Churchill, he was forced out of this house of mirrors. He saw his true portrait, and he didn't like what he saw. It was jarring, and it was uncomfortable. And yet, according to his closest friends, even his wife, it was accurate, and she would know. Ultimately, though, Lady Churchill had the painting destroyed, which shows us just how much we prefer to live with the illusion of who we think we are, the illusion of how we think we appear, rather than the truth. If a portrait of you was painted that accurately depicted what you look like, you know, would you like it? Would you even want to see it? Maybe. Maybe not. But what if this portrait could somehow portray the things within you that no one gets to see, the things we carefully hide behind a filter and see beyond the mask that we present to the world? What if a portrait could somehow portray that part of you as well? Would you ever want to see such a portrait? Would you ever want it to see the light of day? Probably not. Grace holds up a true and accurate portrait before us. The grace doesn't just illuminate all the good on the surface. It unveils what's in the heart, the parts we'd rather tuck away and hide. Because it's a portrait painted by God, the God who sees us through and through. Every week we pray, a God from whom no secrets are hidden. And so he paints a portrait and he holds up, this is who you truly are. And grace challenges us to, the, to identify how we too were once foolish, disobedient, let us stray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, we might react to some of these words as harsh, but can you identify with any of them? Foolish. Disobedient. caught up in your own passions and pleasures, envious, 
hating? Do any of these words resonate? Because of what we once were, Paul writes in verse 5, God saved us, not because of any works done by us in righteousness, but because of mercy. Now, if Paul's we were once description of humanity strikes you as true, if you read it and you readily identify with this way of living, I've done this, then it's easy to see that our good works couldn't possibly earn our approval before God. We could see that we could never be good enough because God is perfect and we're imperfect at best. We've fallen short and we need mercy. If you see verse three is true, it's easy to see that grace needs to be an act of mercy. But if you don't see this we were once description of humanity as as true of yourself, then it can be more difficult to grasp grace because the truth is you don't really think you need it. Some of you know I'm currently working on a doctorate. Um, I don't know if that's important to you or not, but uh, what you don't know is I don't even have a bachelor's degree. I have a 90 uh, credit diploma in graphic design, which is like a solid 30 credit short of a bachelor's. And so when I applied to do a master's in theology at Asbury Seminary, I applied and asked for an exception. You know, I was 26 at the time. I said, can you, can you just admit me as a mature student? And they wrote me back and said, no. And the reason was, you know, look, we, we give the exception to mature students who, whose age and experience in ministry makes up for a lack of a bachelor's or for a bad GPA. So why don't you just go ahead and finish your bachelor's and while you're at it, take some classes in the humanities so that you can show us you're capable of more of making a pretty picture. They didn't say that, but that's how I took it. So I wrote this long-winded response. It was very eloquent. I explained why this wasn't a, course, a good course of action. I showed them my resume and said, you know, I'm at the top of my field. A bachelor's isn't going to help me open any more doors in design. And furthermore, I'm planning on leaving this career and entering into ministry full-time. So it really doesn't make sense to finish it. I went ahead and got references from friends and even my pastor testifying to my theological astuteness. Uh, And then I highlighted my transcripts and gave short descriptions of how these courses actually prepared me for theological studies. (laughs) Retrospect, a little prideful, but I was pulling the whole, like, be the persistent person at the door, just knock and knock and bug them until they just concede. And guess what? They conceded. They said, all right. You can have a trial shot. You have a trial semester, but you have to keep your GPA at at least 3.5 the whole time you're in our school. I said, okay. And so I passed the trial semester and I graduated. I finished my degree and I graduated with honors. So what's the moral of the story? I was good enough. I really had the skill and the talent necessary. And I have to admit, I felt some pride and entitlement. See, I was right all along, Asbury. But grace teaches me to acknowledge this for what it is. It's foolishness. My pride and entitlement are complete foolishness. Grace has taught me to focus on mercy instead. Asbury didn't have to enroll me. I didn't have the baseline qualifications for entry. I didn't even have the qualifications for an exception to the rule. They showed me mercy. Mercy is what made this opportunity possible for me. Now, it breaks down, of course, if you think about it too much, but here's my point. You might be a pretty remarkable person. I'm not going to debate that with you. Even a fairly good person. But without grace, you cannot stand 
before God's perfection and holiness. Because I hate to break it to you, you're not perfect and you're not holy. Again, that's why Paul stresses in verse five, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. If we appeal to how we lived, to our sense of goodness, to our acts of kindness and charity, or even to our religious devotion, if we appeal to these things and think God should accept us and approve of us on the basis of them, it's actually a form of pride and entitlement. And more importantly, it's an affront to the character of God. Because what you're saying to God is that his love should be conditional rather than unconditional. You're saying that God owes you for what you've done instead of accepting the necessity of what God has done for you in Christ crucified. So essentially in this scenario, we're trying to subject God to our terms and conditions. And so Paul wants to stress this with as much force as possible. This is not how God operates. Look at verse four and five. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Why did God save us? Not because of anything we've done. He saved us out of mercy. Why did God save us? Because of his loving kindness towards us. Why did God save us? Because of his goodness. God saved us because that's who God is. God is a savior who saves and he saved us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, in the, into the world who gave himself for us to forgive our sins and to redeem us. And this is a profound expression of the character of God. This is who God is. This is a demonstration of his goodness and loving kindness and mercy toward us. And so if we step back, you see grace has a twofold effect on us. Tim Keller summarizes it well. He writes, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Grace is what allows us to have such a perception of ourselves. Because we no longer have to stand on our own merit to be accepted. God doesn't want your performance. He just wants you because he loves us even at our worst and even at our best, we still need mercy and we still need grace. You can never be entitled to God's grace because it's a gift, not a right. It's for the humble, not for the proud and the entitled. But if you come to grace, and we see this throughout the letter of Titus, grace will define who you are not your works. And grace says you are loved unconditionally by a fierce love that will go through any uh, barrier to reach you and to save you and to cherish you and to show you that God's love will find a way. But grace is not only about being saved, at least not in that sense. It's not only about checking a box and then killing time until we die. Grace is much more holistic than this. This is what Paul stresses in verses five and six. God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So what we have to do is imagine taking a bath. 
Not like with each other, just like imagine taking a bath and, you know, there's the Japanese bath and the seaweed bath or the aromatherapy bath, the milk bath or the, the mud bath, you know, Lewis Litt style, uh, whatever form it takes. Bathing is a very intimate image, isn't it? And it can be a rather helpless image. So rather than imagining like a luxurious pampering of a bath, we should imagine the times where we're so vulnerable, we need someone else to bathe us. So either in, as an infant or toddler or the elderly, or sometimes for reasons in between, there will be seasons or moments in life where you need someone else to come and cleanse you, to wash away the dirt, to wash away the uncleanliness of your body because you're literally incapable of doing it for yourself. And this is the intimate way the spirit of the living God works in us. What Paul is saying is, when you place your faith in Jesus, God gives you the gift of his very spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The spirit of God makes a home within you, takes up residence within you, and is the source of a new life. And the spirit is poured out, fulfilling the promises of God. And in a sense, the spirit draws a bath for us and washes us. And the Spirit washes our innermost being. This verse 3 innermost being, these things in us that we can't seem to overcome ourselves. And the result of this bathing and washing of the Spirit is two words, regeneration and renewal. And both are important and both are really extreme in some sense. It's just another way that Paul stresses how God takes full responsibility for our salvation and how incapable we are to save ourselves. Because regeneration is not recharging like a battery. You know, God doesn't just plug you in and top you off. When God regenerates us, he plants in us a new life, his own life, his spirit, alive in you. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes, we were dead in our transgressions and sins and trespasses, but God made us alive. We can't make dead stuff come back to life in that way. That's what it means for us to experience regeneration. Only God can do that. We were spiritually dead and heading toward eternal death and the Spirit generates new life in us. The Spirit washes away what we were once and before God's eyes, we become a new creation filled with new life. And this new life is Christ's very life within you beginning to renew you through and through. So grace enters into the world to save us and also abides within us and changes us so that we can actually become the sort of people Paul's describing in this passage. People who love well and care well for one another. But we don't become those things because we have to earn God's approval. We become those things as an expression of the God who has already ex accepted us. But what we don't want to do, and I realize I'm doing this somewhat, is reduce this passage down to a theology lesson. Like there's critical theology in these verses, and we need to, to dwell in that. But what we don't want to miss is that Paul very much is describing an experience of grace that he believes every single person can have. Not just an intellectual idea of grace, but an actual life-transforming experience of grace because of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And I wanna be cautious because in some Christian circles, an unhelpful emphasis can be placed on a specific sort of expression of the Holy Spirit. And it can cause people who've experienced the more normal and subtle ways of the Spirit working in our lives to question whether the Spirit's at work in you at all. I mean, I'm just curious. Some of you, you've probably been following Jesus a long time. And have you ever had the thought like, I'm not really sure the Spirit of God dwells in me. Have you ever had that thought? Lots of us. And is it because you read about some of these supernatural things of the Spirit or you hear people saying all these powerful things the Spirit can do in and through you and you look at your life and you think, I'm not so sure. So how do you know if you've had this experience Paul's talking about? How do you know if the Spirit has regenerated you and is renewing you? Well, first, have you placed your faith in Jesus? And from a place of sincerity, have you confessed that he's Lord? Because the scriptures are clear. No one can confess that Jesus is Lord and mean it except by the grace of the Holy Spirit opening your eyes and your mind and causing you to see the truth. Have you had that experience? And as a result, do you desire, even in your imperfection, to desire what God desires? Do you see Jesus as the most brilliant person who's ever lived? Do you want to serve him and trust him and turn to him and become like him? And I hope that's happening for some of you even right now, a new desire growing in you. So let me ask, do you hunger for his presence? Do you long to hear his word? Do you see yourself the way this passage describes you? Are you distressed by your own sin and reach out to God for forgiveness? Do you really want to follow Jesus and obey him and serve him and live for him? More miraculously, do you find yourself loving other Christians? As a quasi-joke, someone got it. <laughs> but this is all the sort of change that starts to happen as the Spirit regenerates us. It doesn't have to be crazy big. It doesn't have to be a light show. Sometimes it's much more subtle, but none of these things are possible without the Spirit generating new life in you. So is that evident in your life? Do you see any of these things at work in you? That is a sign that the Spirit has regenerated you and new life is taking root and is renewing and transforming you. And if you haven't had any of this experience, all you have to do is draw near to Jesus and ask for it. All you have to do is draw near in faith and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please pour your Spirit out on me. That is a prayer that Jesus loves to answer. But finally, Paul has laid all of this foundation actually to get us to verse 8. He says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So the trustworthy saying is everything Paul has just said about grace. So he's reminding Titus, make grace the foundation and motivational drive of the church. In other words, make sure that people are experiencing this reality of grace, that they're building their lives upon this reality of grace, that they're coming at grace from different angles and gazing upon grace so that they can devote themselves to good works. Grace comes first because good works are always an expression of the goodness and loving kindness and mercy that God has shown to us. But good works, my friends, never have the right to define who you are. See, grace frees us from defining ourselves based off of our moral performance or our track record. 
The only thing that has the right to define who you are is God. And God has demonstrated his love for you by sending his son into the world to die for you. God has shown you the extent of his love. You are cherished and you are beloved. That's who you are. What you do or don't do can never change that. And when you live from that experience, you can devote yourself to good works in such a way that it's not about earning or approval. It's just a response to love. But let's flesh this out a bit. What what could good works look like for us here in Vancouver? I want to just give us three examples. The first uh, good work we could commit ourselves to doing is the the good work of conflict, uh, having conflict, no, conflict resolution. That's the word I'm looking for. Engaging conflict well. You know, as Paul said in the opening of this chapter, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. But he doesn't mean avoid conflict by not addressing conflict. That's not what Paul's getting at. He's saying, if you experience the gospel and you know that Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins and has reconciled you to the Father, you will see at its core the gospel is about conflict resolution. So forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Let that shape the way you address conflict with those around you. If you call St. Pete's home, you know that we do this by making a handshake vow. Have you guys heard this? Three commitments. I'll do my best to assume uh, the best about your motives. I won't talk about you behind your back. And if I ever have a problem with you, I'll come talk to you directly about it. This is the vow we make if we call this church home and we try to live it out imperfectly so. But anytime you engage in conflict well, anytime you have a handshake conversation, anytime you address something for the basis of because I know Jesus is in this and this is how he's called us to live, That's a good work. That's a good work. There's also the good work of caring for the poor. As Preston said, we're launching our community groups back up. And one of the rhythms of our community groups is outwards. Once a month, our community groups partner with a local organization to build relationships with people who are not in our regular circle of friends. And most of our community groups partner with a low-income housing society. And we go, and it's really simple. You make a meal, you have snacks, you play board games, you build relationships over time. But we do this because we know Jesus has met us in our own poverty, whether it's social or spiritual or material poverty. We know that Jesus has met us in our poverty, and so we can meet others in theirs. So anytime you serve the poor, anytime you try to serve someone who's marginalized, anytime you participate in your outward rhythm, this is a good work. This is what Paul's talking about. Lastly, there's the good work of trying to integrate your faith with your work. And this is probably the the biggest opportunity for all of us. Someone I mentor uh, is exemplary at this, not perfect, but exemplary. And she, uh, she wouldn't be working in a context where she can just like slap on a Jesus t-shirt and, and tag uh, the walls with Jesus fish. You know, like that's not what she's doing. She's not just talking about Jesus at every opportunity, but she's enamored with Jesus and she wants to express Jesus through her life. And so she tries to treat her coworkers well and show them the dignity that she thinks God would show them and treat them with compassion and understanding and and try to avoid gossip. She tries to model who she knows Jesus to be, imperfectly so, but in such an appealing way. And when people ask her, like, 
what are you all about? She's very honest. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm involved in my church. This is what I did on the weekend. She talks about faith. She invites her coworkers when appropriate to Alpha. But at the end of the day, she doesn't see work as separate from her faith, but as one of the primary places in which she can model the character of Jesus. Does it mean she's a relentless evangelist all the time? No. We get that that's not always appropriate, but there is always an opportunity to demonstrate the love and goodness of God's character through your life to the people that you're spending most of your days with. You see, good works, they don't have to be spectacular people. If you look at Paul's lists through this letter, they're actually very normal activities, but they are good because they are expressions of God's goodness working itself out in and through us. So I hope you see, grace enables us to become devoted to good works, but these good works do not define us. It's a relief because the pressure's off. You don't have to perform. You don't have to worry about whether God is happy with you. God delights in you if you've put your faith in his son. He loves you with an unconditional love. That's who you are. And it's a joy to perform good works because it's actually God's love taking root in you and working it out in the way that you live. But you have to understand, ultimately, God did not save us for good works. He didn't save us so that we could just become good and moral people in this world, although that's part of it. We overlooked verse seven. I've left it to the end. What does Paul say in verse seven? God took all these measures to save us so that being justified by his grace, being justified by everything God has done for us, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God saved us because he loves us and he wants us to enjoy his love forever. That's why God is showing us grace, because he wants us to enjoy his love forever. And if you accept his grace, if you draw near to him and ask for his grace, his grace will change you through and through throughout the course of your life. And his grace will enable you to be devoted to good works because a new life will be living in you, the life of Jesus himself. And the promise is eternal life. Grace says, this is it. You're loved unconditionally. God has done everything you could possibly need. You only have to open your hands and receive it. 